0: The following program is a presentation of Grand Slam Ministries.
1: Hi again, everybody, and welcome to this week's edition of the Dan Scott Show, presented by Grand Slam Ministries. Another week is up on us. This is episode 24 of the show. Hope that you have had a good week and uh, looking forward to spending the next hour with you. Um, I know this will come as a great shock to you, but I, I think we've got a really, really good show for you today because we get to combine two of my very favorite things. We get to talk about Jesus and baseball in the same interview, and I'll tell you more about that in just a bit. Uh, As this episode is airing, depending upon what market you are in, Angela and I are uh, heading out on vacation. We're either getting ready to leave or already on the road and going to be away for two weeks. But don't worry, we've got the next two weeks covered as far as shows go, and we think that you're going to enjoy what we have for you. But today's episode, we go back to another member of the big red machine dynasty a guy by the name of Doug Flynn you remember a few episodes ago we visited with Daryl Cheney, who played uh, 11 years in the big leagues including 1969 through 1975 with the Reds was on that 75 world championship team well that year a rookie by the name of Doug Flynn joined the Reds was there for the 75 and 76 world champions And then in 1977, in early June, was part of a trade that brought a guy named Tom Seaver from the New York Mets to the Cincinnati Reds. Doug Flynn would go on to play through 1985. He has an incredible story, including a family tragedy and mystery that is still unsolved to this day. And we're going to unpack all of that with Doug Flynn when we come back. First, though, I want you to hear something about Grand Slam Ministries, and then we will get into this week's episode. Stay right there.
0: Every day there are children who leave school on Friday and eat little, and sometimes nothing, until they come back to school on Monday. It happens in every community, including yours. Many of these children live in circumstances that deprive them of basic needs necessary for a quality life. At Grand Slam Ministries, we want to change that. We want to invest in our children, giving them hope for the future. That investment includes necessities such as food, clothing, school supplies, and a safe environment to play, to study, to live. Please visit our website, GrandSlamMinistries.org, to find out more about our ministry and how you can help. We're just getting started. Will you come alongside us for the children's sake? Again, that's GrandSlamMinistries.org. Want to see a listing of our affiliates? Check out videos or listen to past shows and explore our archives? It's all available at our website, danscottshow.org. And now, back to the show.
1: Episode 24 of the Dan Scott Show. Thank you for being with us today, and uh, that includes all 13 of our affiliates. Yes, I said 13 because this week we have a brand new affiliate, OTNT-FM Internet Radio in the state of Minnesota has joined our family this week, so uh, we appreciate them. Raleigh, thank you for reaching out and being willing to carry the show, and uh, boy, you're hopping on board at a good time. I believe we're really hitting our stride now 24 weeks into what we're doing here. If you folks in Minnesota or anywhere have missed any of the programs that we have done previously, they are all archived. Danscottshow.org. Just go to the Affiliates and Archives page. You can access it there. Or wherever you get your podcasts, search the Scott Show podcast, and you'll find it there. And it goes all the way back to the origins of the original podcast in 2020 when it was known as Grumpy Old Broadcasters. And there are quite a few episodes before we drew the line of demartation and began this back on January the 8th of this year. So a lot of sports-related stuff there. You can go find it, danscottshow.org, at the affiliates and archive page. Okay, let's jump into this. Our guest this week, as mentioned, is Doug Flynn. He is a former member of the Big Red Machine World Championship teams of 1975 and 1976. He was traded for Tom Seaver, part of a package deal that brought Tom Seaver to Cincinnati in 1977, won a gold glove with the New York Mets in 1980, but has a, a, a very powerful testimony talking about how he came to Christ, why he came to Christ, and the family tragedy that was kind of the linchpin of for all of this. He's also now dabbling in some broadcasting, but we talked about literally to start it off what he was doing at that very moment. Here's my interview with Doug Flynn.
2: Actually, I'm sitting in my office right now, as you can tell with all the stuff around me, uh, here in Lexington, Kentucky. I have been a banker now for over 25 years, which is really weird because I hated dealing with finances. <laughs> and, I, and that's why I got married. I figured I'd married somebody who could handle all that. And, uh, since, as you, you may know, once you get married, what was yours is now hers and what's hers is hers. Uh, it's been a really good relationship for 41 years, but I, I love working here at Central Bank in Lexington. We're a locally owned independent bank. Um, we're about, we when I started here, we were $530 million, and now we're up to almost $4 billion. So it's been a great growth with some wonderful, wonderful people and it gives me an opportunity, uh, because they do let me have some flexibility to go out and do baseball fantasy camps or speaking or golf trips and stuff. So it's just, uh, it's really a nice deal. I don't know how much longer they're going to let me do it, but I'm loving every minute of it right now.
1: Well, and, and you know how these things work, uh, with, with that kind of, of jump in, in the financial security, of the bank, are you taking credit for that?
2: Well, absolutely. There you go. <laughs> absolutely. Uh, and, uh, I tell the, remind the president of that. And he's, he hired me years ago away. I was, I I had got out of baseball, uh, headed up the state of Kentucky's anti-drug program. And then when new administration came in, I was expendable. So I went back into baseball for two years and then he called me and we had this talk and I thought it was a joke. I thought they were kidding. Kyle Macy was here. Coach Joe B. Hall was here. Um, and then Kyle ended up getting a job to go to Moorhead State to be a head basketball coach. Joe B. Hall went to Japan, coached the women's national team. So there was an opening here. and uh, Mr. Deaton called me in and he said, uh, I'd, I'd really like for you to consider it. And I said, I don't have a banking background. He said, I can teach you the banking part, but you have other skills at what we're looking for for this position. And uh, I said, all right. So now he says uh, – when I don't seem too often, he'll say, what have you been doing? I went, just what you hired me to do. I'm out with my peeps. And he said, well, you know, that's why we started direct deposit here is because you're never here long enough to pick up a check. And I went, hey, you're the one that hired me.
1: <laughs> Knew what he was getting into, right? That's right. Well, that's fantastic. Uh, and, and, and you're from that generation of, of Major League Baseball players that when your career was over, you had to find another career. It's not like, oh, yeah. it's, not like it's been since – I guess probably the late eighties and, and into the nineties where, you know, one contract could make you financially secure for the rest of your life. You, you had to go to work after your career ended.
2: Yeah. And, you know, back in the early days, we'd come home from the minor leagues and you had to get an off season job if you weren't playing winter ball, mm-hmm. which was fine. Um, but then I played a couple of years of winter ball, 74 and 75. And um, then I made it to the big leagues in 75. So I, I didn't, uh, work in the off season. I just tried to stay in shape, even though my first year I was making $16,000 a year in the big leagues. And that didn't last very long. So uh, came home and we, I'd find odd jobs and stuff to do. And then you could do some speaking appearances and things like that, which I really enjoyed doing. And there's my buddy, Daryl Chaney, who is an excellent speaker. Um, that's kind of the way we made our money. You had to find something else to do. Uh, someone asked me the other day, said, would you like to still be playing on I went, yeah uh and it wouldn't be for the money. well you know the money is so good now i love the idea that we played in the 70s where there were single year contracts um we were making about the same amount of money that just average teacher was making or worker was making uh and and you were out there playing the game because you actually loved it and i think today guys still love it but they're really getting compensated well for it too
1: yeah you you didn't have uh agents and or you had agents, but I'm talking about the way they influence things. You didn't have guys who might be checking the uh, stock market report in the, in the locker room, uh, and, and those kind of things. Right.
2: Well, I didn't even have an agent. Uh, I didn't get an agent. I see. Uh, my first year was 75. I didn't get an agent until after the 1980 season. Um, and that year I won a gold glove and I was talking to a friend of mine, Joe Sambito, who mm-hmm. pitched for Houston. And Joe said, uh, he said, you ought to, you ought to consider getting an agent. He said, I just got one. And he said, I think you'll like them. But he says, and cause when you go and negotiate a contract, you would walk out of there feeling like how in the world did I ever get a job in the first place? Right. Cause they would just tell you how bad you are and what you couldn't do. And, and uh, you're sitting there thinking, good night, I must be really bad. So then you get an agent to go in there and can listen to all that stuff for you. And, and that turned out to be very nice for me.
1: And, and you had to deal with that with Bob Housum in the early days, right?
2: Dick Wagner, really. Right. Dick Wagner was a GM. Uh, <laughs> after my second year, I made 16000 my first year. That was the minimum. I mm-hmm. made 19000 my second year, which was the minimum. So the third year, I said, I'm going in. I'm going to ask for 25000 So I go bopping into the office, and he sit down. And he says, what's it going to take for you to play next year? I said, 25000 He said, oh, Okay. I'm thinking damn gum I knew I should ask for more twenty-three thousand dollars no 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 I said Mr. Wagner that, that's twenty-five thousand dollars he said twenty-three thousand dollars or just go on home and I said twenty-three of work <laughs> and so uh I signed for twenty-three thousand dollars and and uh here I am my third year in the big league making now we were very lucky because we won the World Series the first two years so we got a little money from the World Series. I think my first year, our take home was fourteen thousand. The second year was nineteen thousand. So that put me up over thirty thousand dollars, which happened to be more money than my dad was making, and uh, so that was kind of weird, <laughs> but very thankful. Two great years.
1: We're visiting with Doug Flynn on this week's edition of the show. Let, let's let's go back. You're, you're born in Lexington, Lexington Kentucky. Uh, so you're right there in, in the middle of uh, all, all of that Kentucky basketball um, hoopla, and we'll, we'll talk about that coming up maybe in a bit. But uh, when did you begin to get the sense that you were a pretty good athlete? Never. <laughs>
2: I don't think I have a sense of that now, truthfully. Uh, I, I played three sports in high school.
1: Um, Bryant Station High, right?
2: Bryant Station High School. So I played football, basketball, baseball. When I, after my senior year, I had absolutely zero scholarship offers, none. So I ended up going to the University of Kentucky and playing basketball because they had signed a point guard who uh, went ahead and signed a contract with the Cleveland Indians. And so they had an opening, school was about ready to start. uh, There was nobody else available. So I get a call said, we would like for you to come play basketball. If that doesn't work out, then we'll give you a baseball scholarship. And I thought, well, that's pretty cool. Uh, so I went and played freshman basketball, started every game, uh, got a leadership award on that uh, that year, uh, played with the first African-American to ever play basketball in Kentucky. A young man by the name of Daryl Bishop uh, was my roommate, played with the first African-American to play baseball in Kentucky. And that was Derek Bryant, who still is a dear friend. And uh, so that year was over, I go out to the baseball team, I don't get to play, and I was basically told that uh, you don't have the skills to be a Division I baseball player. I was 5'8", about 155 pounds maybe, so I went off to a junior college. I grew three inches and started gaining a little bit of weight. I started maturing a little bit, was playing softball and baseball on Sundays. And some friends woke me up one morning uh, during summer school and said, come on, we're going to try out for the Cincinnati Reds. So I went and tried out for the Reds. And after the fourth tryout, they finally said, what would it take for you to be a pro ball player? And I said, a mm, hot dog, whatever. <laughs> and they gave me an opportunity to play. But I really, even when I was playing in the big leagues, even though I had confidence defensively, I never felt like that I was an elite defensive player or that, I mean, they're just, everybody seemed to have that much more confidence than I did. I love to play and I love to compete, but I never really sold out with my confidence. Like I see a lot of these kids that do today. And uh, had I do it over again, I don't know, because for me, I fought between a fine line between being humble and aggressive and cocky. And there was just that fine line that I don't think that I've ever, ever crossed. And, uh, i don't know my wife might tell you something but that that's not true but
1: <laughs> well you know it, it's interesting because th- there had to be some level of confidence to become a big league baseball player i mean that's that's not yeah. just happenstance but at the same yeah. time I, I get the i get the fine line thing because i've i've walked it pretty much my entire life what was yeah. what was confidence or or insecurity a, a problem uh, an issue when you were growing up
2: uh, is not to compete, but not to recognize myself as an elite athlete. Okay. Um, you know, I, I enjoyed the competition. I didn't care who I played against. That didn't bother me, but it was just taking it to that next level that you really see these outstanding ball players. And I I think the best players I ever saw were the best concentrators uh, that I ever saw. Like, uh, I played with a guy one time. Well, it's no secret I played with Pete Rose, and I remember Pete getting his divorce papers at the ballpark and going out and going five for five the same day. Well, I'd have been devastated if something like that would happen to me. Uh, you look at Michael Jordan. It didn't matter if he was sick or what. He could concentrate, forget everything. And I had a little trouble with that, uh, putting all that stuff aside. And uh, uh, but you know. There's something still about me today, though, that still wants me to go out and compete. So I do it at a different level, like with golf, maybe, or with fishing tournaments or stuff like that. Even though it's different, uh, I still sometimes feel like, you know, maybe I don't quite belong with that group. Uh, And I know it's a weird feeling. I'm not sure how to describe it. But uh, I don't think it's a lack of security or insecurity. Mm -hmm. It's just there's a different level for the upper elite athletes. And I'm just thankful that I had enough that was in there. that kept me in the game for a long time with the other 99% of the guys that were playing the game.
1: Well, I mean, just the, the sheer length of your career, uh, more than doubles the average major league career. Yeah. I mean, you were in the big leagues for what, 11 years, 75 through 85.
2: Right. Right. Well, thank goodness for leather. All I know is I, you know, my, <laughs> deep, <laughs> my, my glove kept me in the game a long time. And, and I played with some, so many good people and you know you never wanted to burn bridges when you got moved on from one team to the next but uh, and and I tried not to do that and it, it's kind of really neat to look back on all of that now but yeah my gloves what get me in the league
1: yeah I, I saw uh in, in doing the research that you hit seven career home runs in, in the yep. big leagues can you remember all seven of them absolutely <laughs> <laughs>
2: well you know I, I was a hundred and. The, the biggest I ever played was 168 pounds. Well, good night. I l- I go look around these university of Kentucky ball players. Now they got nobody under 200. Mm-hmm. I mean, their infielders are six, 200. They're all buff. They've all lifted weights. Of course we didn't do any of that stuff back then. And, uh, and the game was different, you know, guys that up the middle, if you looked at all of us with our sizes back in then, you had Buddy Harrelson and Ozzie Smith and, Me and Manny Trio, we were all 170 pounds or so. Our job was to play good defense and run the defense and, uh, you know, hit behind runners, take two and oh, take three and one. It's a whole different ballgame now. And guys are big and strong and athletic. And uh, I don't know that they play as well. But, boy, they sure got some talented people out there right
1: now. Well, and, you know, just look at what the shortstop position, for instance, used to be versus what it is now. And oh. and I guess it was probably Cal Ripken Jr. first and then maybe Nomar Garcia-Parr coming behind him that changed the yeah. prototype of the shortstop. And that's one of the reasons that I think Dave Concepcion gets such a raw deal when it comes to not being in the Hall of Fame. Number one, he's overshadowed by – the hall of famers on his own team in 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 the big red machine. But I think he's being unfairly judged by what the shortstop position has become now, as opposed to what it was during his career. I mean, for his career, he was an elite offensive shortstop at that time.
2: Well, if it wasn't for Ozzie, Davey would have won 15 gold gloves. Right. So, and plus he could hit, he could hit for power. Uh, People ask me all the time, who was better, Davey or Ozzie? Well, just the fact that you're making that comparison tells me he belongs in the Hall of Fame. Mm -hmm. Uh, But Davey was uh, in a big game. I'll take him every day. The thing about Ozzie, Ozzie did it every single day. He was was just – he worked hard at it and he was great at it. Davey sometimes would, you know, get a little tired or take a little afternoon off. But when it came to a big game, there was nobody better. I mean, he was fun to play with. He was fun to be around. And I agree with you. Uh, to me, uh, and you know, he wasn't huge, but Davey was six one, maybe, and you know, he came up kind of thin, got a little heavier later. But yeah, you're right. Cal Ripken screwed it up for all us. This-
1: <laughs> 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 We're visiting with Doug Flynn, uh, former uh, Major League Baseball player, two World Series ring- rings with the Big Red Machine, and uh, had a career that lasted through 1985. We'll, we'll come back to that in, in just a moment. We talked about how you got to baseball. I always like to hear the stories of how my guests came to Jesus. What what, what was your faith journey like? Uh, and, and starting, did you grow up in a Christian home?
2: Oh, absolutely. I grew up, um, I just lost both my parents, one in September and one in December. And they were just a model of consistency when it came to the Christian faith and their walk with Christ. They were, just beautiful, beautiful servants. And so from day one, I grew up in a Baptist church and was, you know, every, as the doors were open, we were there because I could walk to church. I lived right down the street from it. So I had no excuses. And my parents made sure that I was there. Uh, so I grew up, I uh, got baptized very early and, uh, and, and I've always been, Considered myself a christian but it wasn't until i got older and i went to a conference actually after i got married I got married in 82 and there was a really wonderful i got traded to texas they started doing a bible study uh, for couples and frank tanana and jimmy sunberg and uh, mark wagner there was a bunch of guys that were in it and they were just wonderful and i started listening and am thinking you know what something was really missing in my life. I knew Jesus, but I didn't have a personal relationship with Christ. Mm -hmm. So that was 82. Well, 1984, my wife said, I came home one day, and she said, we're going to a pro athletes outreach conference. And I went, don't think so. I'm going fishing. And she said, I've already sent the money in. (laughs) And I went, dang. All right, let's go. So we get out to the PAO conference and there was a guy waiting for me. He was in Tampa, Florida the first year named Dave Swanson. Dave used to be with Thomas's English Muffins and he was a chapel leader up in New York. And I walked in and tears were flowing down his face. And he said, Doug, I have been praying for you for nine years to come to this conference. Oh, wow. And so we go to the conference and I realized right then that as a newlywed, if this relationship was gonna work, the only way it was going to work is it was based upon biblical principles because I was a mess and I was very independent. You know, it wasn't a mess that you would see, like, I'm going to get in trouble, I'm going to run around on my wife, do all that stuff. It was just I was a mess emotionally because I knew having that head knowledge uh, that I needed to have some heart knowledge of who Jesus really was. Mm-hmm. And so, my wife and I just rededicated our lives. She came home right after that conference and got baptized. She's grown up in the Catholic church. She's uh, Puerto Rican. and uh, But we knew right then, all right, if this is going to work, that everything we do, every decision we make when it comes to finances, relationships, friendships, work, whatever, that it has to be through prayer and it has to be with the relationship of Christ. And I have absolutely no regrets. And boy, does it free you up to have just a wonderful life.
1: It, it, it's incredible to sit and listen to, to, to you share that because the, the more people that I talk to on this show and, and we're 25, 26 episodes into it or something like that now, I, I'm, I'm hearing a lot of similar stories. People who had some experience with Christ when they were very young but it didn't get real until they got older. Yeah. And, you know, living here in, in the South, uh, just a couple of hours south of Charlotte in, in the Clemson, South Carolina area, this is the, the part of the country known as the Bible Belt, as okay. you know. And, and, and Billy Graham used to always say, because he was born and raised in Charlotte, Billy Graham used to always say that he had a real burden for this part of the country because there are people who thought they were Christians because they were born and raised in a Christian home and never yep. never had that that moment where they developed that personal relationship with Christ by asking Him to come into their life as as Savior and Lord. And, and it kind of sounds like you were in that same position.
2: Oh, absolutely, I was. Uh, you know, you, I mean, I have a lot of buddies that I grew up with. They say, well, we know the Bible. And I went, yeah, that, that's good. That's
1: good. Well, the devil knows the Bible.
2: And Satan, that's why I tell yeah. them Satan knows the Bible pretty good too. And, but what I had to realize is I really didn't have that personal relationship. And, you know, I mean, I would, I would tell people and I, I knew all the Bible verses. I knew how to compliment the little old ladies in church. I could say <laughs> the right things. I went to all the functions and then you come home and you say, all right, what's missing? And I got challenged by a few people and I'm challenged by them today. I have an accountability group. It's not just a partner, it's, it's a group of guys that will will hold each other accountable. And then <laughs> we screwed up though, because we go and tell each other, oh, we're doing good. And then we'll invite the wives out with us one time and then they'll set us everybody straight about whether we're telling the truth or not. <laughs> and uh, I think that's just, but I need that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I love it. Iron sharpens iron. I got to be around other believers and other Christians. I want to hang out with people who have, but know that there's a future after death and there's hope. And after going through you know, the death of my parents, um, I, I don't know, I don't understand how people that don't have that relationship with Christ go through tragic times when God can give you so much peace and he can, you know, that goes far beyond anything that a human hug can do. Uh, and I don't know how all that works. I just know that it's real and uh, the more I uh, was challenged by my pastor to read through my Bible every day, and I'd never read through the Bible. Now I'm on a I am on I do not know fifth, sixth time or something. How when you open up your heart and your mind to see what God wants to tell you, how He can talk to you. And I, I think if God ever talked to me audibly, it'd probably scare the out of me. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But when I hear Him talk to me through friends and through music and through my pastor. And through videos, uh, wow, it's like, why did I go so long without having this in my life? Uh, But I'm, I'm so thankful that, you know, even at 34, I was 34 years of age, when all that happened, man, these last 34, 36, 30, whatever years have been pretty cool.
1: Well, I, I'm 56 years old. I'm a preacher's son. My dad is still pastoring and preaching at age 75, so I was laughing when you said that you didn't have a choice about going to church because <laughs> your parents, because uh, when I when I speak at churches or to men's groups or whatever, invariably I use the old preacher's son joke about having the drug problem, yeah, that every yeah. time the church doors are <laughs> open, I was drug inside. And believe it or not, Doug, there are people, when I tell that, who've never heard that joke before, which I find fascinating. Yeah. Um, But, uh, so I had, But I'm glad, you know,
2: I mean, when I'm glad because they set the standard for me, you know, and and for parents, you never know, I mean, when that time's going to come, that it's going to sink in. Mm -hmm. Uh, but because I had heard it and there, and and when I was playing ball or when I was doing anything, whether I was speaking, playing ball, whatever, there's only two people that I wanted to impress. That was my mom and my dad. If I knew if I impressed them, then I'd probably done a pretty good job. And so all that stuff that they were ingrained to in me, I my biggest fear of doing anything wrong or not doing going to church was uh, afraid that I would upset them. I remember when I, I became a deacon, my dad came up and he put his hands on me and he said, this is the proudest day of my life. Not the World Series, not the gold glove, not all that other stuff that day that i was a
1: deacon he said this is the proudest day of my life isn't that something <laughs> he said because because my dad when i got ordained as a deacon here in south carolina he came down from west virginia and was one of the ones who came and and laid yeah. hands and and prayed on me and, and he actually baptized me twice for when i was 14 i just got wet uh but <laughs> Amen. but but, but the second time when i finally gave my life to christ at, at age 45 after years and years of running um, he, he baptized me in, in our church here in South Carolina now. Oh. And, and that's a, that's, that's a memory that I'll always have. And I'm just getting chills I thinking about you, it uh, now. Uh, isn't it
2: cool? Cause you can't outrun God. Isn't that oh, so cool? It, listen, you, you, you,
1: you and, you and I will have to talk sometime and, and I'll share my story with you because I, I was, I was running at top speed, my man, top speed.
2: Oh, hey, you and me both, man, <laughs> five year. I just signed a five-year contract in New York. I was single, everything was just, and then, uh, but I'd always been praying about, Lord, if when I get married, I want to marry a good Christian girl. And it didn't take long after I signed that contract, boy, there she was. And I I remember coming home to my dad. My dad said, son, you all right? Yes, sir. Uh, What's going on with you and this girl? Well, dad, I'm in love with her. What do you know about her? And I said, well, her name's Olga Edis Muñiz. And my dad gave me this look like, seriously? And uh, I tell you what, her mom and my mom prayed us together. And there ain't nothing more powerful than a mama's prayer, buddy. So now 41 years later, we're we're more in love than we ever were.
1: Did, did Pete Rose introduce you to her? He did, he
2: did, blind date, sort of. Well, I, I was on, we were going to dinner one night after a game and I was with New York and Pete was with Philly. And I said, Pete, why don't you tell Carol, who became his second wife, why don't you tell her to bring a friend along because we go eat dinner, Pete and I would just talk baseball. So I get on first that night, and Pete says, man, I got good news and bad news. I said, well, what's the bad news? He said, well, that girl coming tonight's engaged. And I went, I don't care. Pete, I can get my own dates. I'm, I'm not worried about that. And I said, Carol just needs somebody to talk to. So I said, hey, I got the hit and run. I got to go on this pitch. What's the good news? As I'm taking off towards second, he said, she looks good.
1: <laughs>
2: and, and she did. And eight months later, we got married.
1: <laughs> yeah, and, and you know what? This, this is just me being a lifetime baseball guy, but the thing that I picked up in there was you told Pete the hit and run was on and you had to go. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. I, you know, Pete and I, was, he was so good. I I love those guys, uh, Pete and Johnny. And Johnny and I still do a lot of stuff together. Pete's 82 years old now and uh, I actually went to visit him when he went to prison. Uh, but he'll tell people now when he's out in Vegas, if people go out to get an autograph, they'll go up and they'll say, that they know me, they'll say, I I know Doug and older Flynn. He'll say, I introduced him. And, uh, and, he, and he's right, he did.
1: Mm-hmm. He and his wife, Carol. Yep. Yeah, we're, we're visiting with Doug Flynn on, on this week's uh, edition of the Dan Scott Show. Um, One of the, you, you, you talked about Christ giving you that peace, the Bible says, a peace that surpasses understanding. You, you have been tested on that quite a few times in, in your life, uh, recently with the, the death of your parents uh, and, and the, the death of your favorite uncle, which just uh, took place a, a couple of three weeks ago. I know you had to speak at that funeral, <clears throat> but uh, I, I guess we go all the way back to even before you actually had the the active relationship with Jesus uh, and, and this this incredible and incredibly sad story about your sister that I had no idea about until I started doing some research for this interview. But uh, your sister, Melanie has been missing since 1977. And that's, that's just an incredible burden to have to live with for all these years.
2: Well, you know, I'm so thankful that um, I I finally have that relationship now with Christ because there was a lot of bitterness and a lot of hate. And, and I would be lying to you if I told you that some days I don't wake up and there's some people around here. I just don't like, Mm -hmm. I know that they know something that happened, but she was dating a police officer. Uh, There's a book out called the bluegrass conspiracy. Uh, All of a sudden she disappears. The police officer says he really didn't know her very well. That's a lie. The other police officers that were covering this uh, basically covered it up got rid of all the evidence for the first seven or eight years. So it was a blatant cover up by police. Uh, And I think my sister just knew a lot of stuff that was going on, fell in love with this police officer. He was married, didn't tell anybody. She found out he was married and probably said, look, it's either her or me and I know what's going on. I think they got rid of her. Uh, It's still supposedly an open case after uh, that. But, you know, I was going to spring training 1977, when this happened, we just won two world championships. And I called Dick Wagner, who's the general manager, and I said, uh, Mr. Wagner, uh, this is going on. I want to bring my parents down. Uh, they're going to come stay because we're getting all these phone calls about my sister word. We don't know what's going on. This is early in the investigation. It's only been like two weeks and I had to go to spring training. So he says, well, you can't live outside of the hotel. And I said, why not? He said, well, you have to have three years in the big leagues. I said, oh, okay. well, can you make an exception? Because I want my parents to be there with me. He says, Doug, we don't make exceptions. If I did it for you, we'd have to do it for everybody. I said, really? I said, all right, I quit, and I hung up the phone. So about an hour goes by, and the phone rings. It's Pete Rose, and he says, he's laughing. He says, did you quit? I went, yeah, I quit. He says, seriously? I said, I quit. I said, my family's more important to me than this game. I said, Pete, we won two World Series. The only place I got to go goes down now. And he started laughing. He said, I got you a place out where I'm staying. I got a room for your mom and dad and a room for you. And his family just took me and my family in and wrapped their arms around us during that spring training of 77. Uh, little did I know that probably one of the reasons I said something to Mr. Wagner, I got traded later that year, mm-hmm. which, was fine, which was the best thing to happen because I got a chance to go play every day. But I, every day when I go to the ballpark, somebody would be asking me about my sister. And to the point where when I came back into Cincinnati, two or three people did and, and it got to me. Uh, and I had a lousy year in 77. I mean, it was, every day there'd be somebody asking and I did not handle it well. Uh, but that's where I really started struggling with my faith too, because I'm thinking, you know, why would God let something like this happen? Especially to people like my mom and dad. And, and then I started hating people and getting very bitter and very defensive. And then after I came and got my relationship with Christ in 84, I realized that uh, a guy came up to me and he says, Doug, I just want you to know, God came to me in a vision. And he told me, he said, your sister, uh, because of her upbringing, uh, and before she died, that you're going to spend eternity with her in heaven. And that put me at such ease and knowing that God had this thing under control. And it's helped me now to realize that I I have to pray for those people that I think were guilty. And I do pray for them. I don't like them, but I pray for them. And the Bible tells me I have to love them, but I'm not too sure it said I had to like them. And I still work on that. But it's still an ongoing investigation. And even recently, since that movie The Cocaine Bear came out, they start the thing off with a couple of people that were involved in my sister's disappearance. And now it's generated more interest as they want to talk about it. And I'm not ready to talk. i I would be ready. I think Dan to go out and tell people the absolute truth mm-hmm. of what happened, but I don't know that it would ever get reported as the way that we tell it from my family's perspective. So I'm kind of laying off on that, but you know, now I do have a piece about what happened. Uh, And I don't know how non-Christians go through any kind of struggles because I'm not strong enough to handle it. Uh, I have to have, you know, that total peace that God gives you that he talks about in the Bible that goes beyond all human understanding and comprehension because I I can't do it on my own. And with that happening, and then I went through cancer uh, back in 2010, and I remember sitting there after they told me, said, you got cancer. And I said, what are you going to do about it? And they said, well, we're going to try to get rid of it. And I just said, all right, God. If you got other plans for me, then use me in a, in a different way, in a better way. And, and use me that I know it's for you and not just for my selfish self. And boy, what a freedom it gives you knowing that if you're living in Christ, that when things come up like that, he's got it. He's got it. Absolutely got it. And I don't doubt that one second.
1: And at the same time, as a former pastor of mine used to say, that's easy preaching and hard living. Yeah. because when you're <clears throat> excuse me when you're in the moment you can get overwhelmed by all of these other things and, and you have to at least speaking personally you have to intentionally stop and sometimes pick up the Bible and and go back and, and start reclaiming those promises yeah. that are in there
2: and you know what Dan not only that but in, in, in most of the stuff I was doing back then it was all about me. And when my mom and dad were spending time in a nursing home and dad was, they had dementia and one had Alzheimer's and they were really struggling and they couldn't go through, they couldn't do little media things on their own at all. They had right. to have help. And I started praying and what God told me, he says, I, I just said, God, why are, you, why are you doing this to these people? These are great people. They love you. Why are you doing it? And it was, it was like, He looked at me and he says, Doug, I'm not doing it for them. I got them taken care of. I'm working on you. Oh, that, that that hit home. You know, he's working on my patience, on my self selfishness, on uh, my servanthood. That's what I got out of that, and that's what I still get out of that. And uh, sometimes it it takes those tough lessons to learn that. But once I got myself out of the way, it, it sure helps it all.
1: Yeah, I was just going to say those are, are hard lessons to learn. I mean, yeah, you,
2: oh, they yeah. are hard lessons to learn, and I'm not a crier. <laughs> and you know I, I don't cry too much and i'm not a i'm not a raise my hand i'm afraid because in the baptist church if you raise your hand you'll think you're dancing and you can't do that so uh <laughs> uh but i my wife gets on me the other time she says we're gonna go get your shoulder fixed so you can get your hands up in the air and and uh and i said look you you know where my heart is and but i i tell you what it, the, the goodness of god is is just so wonderful and you know what? I actually got a chance to speak at a MLB winter meeting in Louisville, and there were some writers in there that I know that I was a little short with at times, and I basically just apologized as guys for what if I ever treated you all wrong, if I ever said anything that was bad to you. I just want you to know I hope you'll forgive me, and I apologize for that. Uh, that's what you know when you get that relationship with Christ. you not a, you don't mind asking for forgiveness. You don't mind seeking forgiveness. It's just, uh, you know, it's it's hard to explain. But boy, it's such a freedom that non Christians don't have. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I, I'm just, I'm so blessed to have a great group of people around me, not only to help raise me, but they're around me now. Uh,
1: the, the the raising the hands thing, I, I I laughed a little bit when you said that because I I, I go to a Southern Baptist church and. And you see it some, but you don't see it much. And a number of years ago, we had an interim pastor, in uh, before our our current pastor came, and, and he talked about that one time. And he talked about his his daughter when she was hurt or troubled or something was bothering her when she was very young. She raised her hands up for you know, Daddy, pick me up. And and, and he and he said he said, so what's the difference in a Christian doing that? Because aren't aren't you lifting your hands up and saying, "Daddy, I need you to to yeah, our fa- to our you. Father in heaven"? So I like that, yeah. I'll use
2: that, dude. I just I'm gonna steal that from you.
1: Oh, I'm sure he stole it from somebody. <laughs> the, the the first newspaper editor I worked for told me all great ideas are stolen. So you know that's <laughs> that's the way it goes. Visiting with Doug Flynn, uh, and we just could, could go on forever, but we're kind of coming down the stretch here. I, you you talked about the 1977 season you're going into your third year in the big leagues with the Reds and, and then I think it was June 15th came along and um, I'm sure you tell people that you were the centerpiece of the trade that it took to get Tom Seaver to Cincinnati right the glue the glue yes <laughs> the glue. Uh, did Daryl tell you about that huh hey, did he, say-
2: he he he, uh, he
1: made passing reference to it yes
2: well, you know, to be a part of that ball club, uh, we kind of have some fun with it now. And Johnny Bench tells me that they had the deal made. They needed one more person, and he told Sparky, he said, send Doug to New York. And Sparky looked at him kind of funny, and he says, Sparky, he's not going to play here. He needs a chance to go play somewhere. So, Johnny says he takes credit for me being traded. Uh, but I got a chance to introduce the grade eight one night uh, at Cincinnati, and I was having some fun, and so I got them all out there and I said, ladies and gentlemen, the most overrated group of players in the history of the game. There's 500 people there looking at me like, where is he going with this? I said, well, in 1970, those guys over there got beat by Baltimore. In 1972, they got beat by Oakland. 73, they got beat by the Mets. 74, they disappeared. 75, a little country boy makes the team and they win the World Series. 76, a little country boy's back, they win the World Series again. 77, they trade the little country boy away, and they never went again. You do the math. <laughs> and somebody in the back of the room hollered, the glue. So now we have a lot of fun. I have T-shirts. I'll send you a T-shirt, Dan. It's got the glue, 1975-76. And uh, all the all the proceeds go to uh, Hope for the Warriors, mm-hmm. which is a military charity that takes care of military families and friends. So it's uh, we've had a lot of fun with it.
1: The unveiling of uh, the Johnny Bench statue at Great American Ballpark a number of years ago, um, the the entire grade eight was there uh, because Joe was still alive and and, yeah. and, and Pete was there, um, and and I took my daughter, my youngest daughter, who is a huge baseball fan, huge Reds fan like I am, and, and you know we were kind of in the back of the crowd, but I wanted her to be able to see those eight guys who were there at one time, because you never knew if they would all be together again. Right. And so that is the collection of what could have been the greatest baseball team in the history of the game right there.
2: I agree with you. And I, I miss it. Now we've lost some guys and, you know, I'm, I'm hoping they were coming up a couple of years away from our 50th anniversary of mm-hmm. that group of guys. That, well, I was the baby, Dan, and the baby's 72 now. Right. So you, you just, you just hope, And I still stay in touch with a few guys. We're about, we got another one that uh, you can keep on your prayer list. That's Pat Zachary. Pat was in the trade with me when we went to New York, and uh, Joel Youngblood went to visit him the other day. Pat's not doing good. He's got some nasty cancer stuff going on with him. And, you know, there's just the time is coming. I I hope the Reds will do something special for that group because, and, and I look back and I think, not only were they the smartest group of baseball players, but w- the way they went about their business was just unbelievable. The rest of us just fell right into suit, fell right in line with them. Uh, <clears throat> so, I-, I hope that they'll do something special and get as many of the guys to come back in as they can. Uh, but I used to think those guys were so big. You know, you look at Johnny, and Johnny's you know, six foot and, and probably played at 220. Perez was 6'2 and played at 225. And I was looking at the Reds lineup a couple of years ago, where Joy Votto 6'3", 235, Jay Bruce 6'4", 230-something. I'm thinking, wow, those were our big guys, and our big guys were just pretty average for what mm-hmm. the players are now. But there was nothing average about them when they got on the ball field. I mean, they went out there with a confidence that just – everybody knew that they were going to beat you. And I tell somebody, what was it? I had great seats there for a couple of years. Man, I got to watch all those guys perform – me and Daryl would sit over there. Daryl Cheney, my dear friend, taught me how to be a professional because I was basically trying to get his job, and he sat there and told me this is what you need to be a utility player on this ball club, and you got to do this, this, and this, and I love him to death, and he's one of my dearest friends. He's a solid believer and just, you know, I, I cherish every time I get to spend some moments with him.
1: Yeah, I had him on the show a few weeks ago, and, and he's the one who facilitated uh, you being on, on the show this week. Uh, he was just a, just a joy to talk to uh, and, and invited me to his golf tournament. I don't play golf anymore, but he invited me to his golf tournament next, uh, next year in, in the Helen, Georgia area, which is about an hour oh, from where I live. So, Oh, uh, you got to go, Dan. You well, go. yeah, I'll go with my tape recorder. Uh, or, Leo Mazzoni
2: was there and Dave Bristol was there, Glenn Hubbard. It was, it was a good bunch of guys. Do,
1: do you know, and, and, and we'll get into wrap-up mode after this, but do you know that um, I, I'm the director of broadcasting at Furman University and unfortunately in 2020 they dropped baseball. But oh. in, in in the three years prior to that, Leo Mazzoni was uh, an unofficial advisor to our Head baseball coach and and pitching coach, and the pitching coach Caleb Davis is the one who had the relationship with him. So I got to spend a, a bit of time with Leo Mazzoni over the the course of the last two or three years of, of Furman baseball. I had no idea how funny that man was.
2: Oh, he's hilarious! Yeah, because all of our memories of him are just this.
1: Yep. The first and, the, and the the and first he, time the first time he and I met, we were on a, a a getting on a bus to go play University of Georgia in Athens. And I was sitting behind him. I introduced myself to him. And, and I said, I'm, I'm our Skip Carey, except I'm not as, as talented. He said, well, at least you're alive. Oh, <laughs> so, that's great. I, I said, touche. That, so that was my first conversation with Leo Mazzoni. That's
2: great. Hey, Dan, I appreciate you you know getting guys on to talk about you know our faith and our careers and stuff. Because a writer asked me one day, he said, why do we not have any more heroes like we used to? And I said, oh, they're out there. You all just choose not to go talk to them. Right. You're looking for the sensational, sexy, off the charts, goofy stuff. And I said, there's a lot of good guys out there that you just don't want to talk to anymore. So I appreciate you having us on. Well,
1: that's why I do this, because God is still working in people's lives, Doug, and you're not hearing the stories in the mainstream media. Final question for you, and we'll wrap it up. How do you want to be remembered? Uh...
2: I, uh, truthfully, I just want people to say, you know, Doug Flynn, he was a follower and loved Jesus. That's all. That's I'll take that right now.
1: What great words, right? Isn't that how we all should want to be remembered as somebody who loved and followed Jesus Christ? Can't tell you how much I enjoyed that conversation with Doug Flynn. It's like a lot of these interviews that we do. I could have kept going and going and going, but try to really be respectful Of people's time. We'll get him back on again because he's got quite a few more stories to tell. Quick break to let you hear something about Grand Slam Ministries, and we will come back and put a wrap on episode 24 of the Dan Scott Show right after this.
0: Grand Slam Ministries exists to glorify Jesus Christ in multiple ways through this radio show and its accompanying online Digital and video components through our sister websites, danscottshow.org and grandslamministries.org, and through furthering our core missions, mentorship, and providing food and other necessities to children. None of this is possible without your prayers and support. By making a gift to Grand Slam Ministries today, you'll not only help this program remain on this radio station. You'll help us grow our family of stations, allowing us to bring stories of God working in the lives of men and women everywhere to a larger audience. And at the same time, your gift will help us in the initial launch of those core mission programs. Grand Slam Ministries is in its infancy. We need your support. Will you help us today? Visit our website at GrandSlamMinistries.org. And prayerfully consider a one time or monthly gift today. Above and beyond anything else, please pray for our ministry. Thank you and God bless. Like what you hear? Have a question or comment? Maybe a guest suggestion? Drop us an email and let us know. Dan at DanscottShow.org. And now, back to the Dan Scott Show. Presented by Grand Slam Ministries.
1: Back to put a wrap on this week's edition of the show. Again, our thanks to Doug Flynn. And thanks to Daryl Cheney, who helped facilitate that and get us set up. If you missed any of the interview, the episode... Is archived at danscottshow.org, the affiliates and archives page, or at uh, the Dan Scott Show podcast site, wherever you get your podcast. Next week on the show, it's, it's interesting how these things happen uh, because God keeps dropping these incredible interviews in my lap. You remember going back a couple of months, my conversation with my buddy David Stein who was a culturally Jewish and admitted atheist and uh, alcohol addict, drug addict, who is now a campus pastor in Atlanta. Well, wouldn't you know that God dropped another former Jewish atheist who's now a Christ follower into my lap for an interview? Neil Getzlow is going to be our guest next week, and uh, his conversion is relatively recent, just uh, 2020 in fact, coming out of a life of pornography addiction, prostitution addiction, and and how God stepped in, delivered him from that, saved his marriage. Uh, There's a lot of his story and my story that parallel, and I think you're really going to enjoy that. That is next week. Neil Getzlow will be our guest. He also has a podcast called Unmasked that I'm going to be a guest on in a few weeks. So we're kind of doing the mutual admiration thing and sharing our stories. But uh, that is coming up next week. And then in two weeks, we're going to replay an interview I did with uh, one of my mentors, Don Harper. And uh, you'll hear that coming up in a couple of weeks. Angela and I are now officially on vacation, looking forward to spending some time together and looking forward to getting back with you coming up again next week with the Neil Getzlow interview. Listen, have a great week. We'll look forward to talking to you next Sunday on The Dan Scott Show. Until then, I'm Dan saying God bless you and so long, everybody.